Gracious God and Father, we are thankful that you do lead your people in victory in Christ by the power of your Holy Spirit as we hear the voice of our shepherds speaking through your word. We're thankful, O God, that you have cleansed us of our sins and that you have reconciled us to yourself by the blood of your Son. We're thankful that you have raised us with Christ to new and everlasting life, that we might find in Jesus the true fulfillment of our existence, that we might know the purpose for which we were made, that we might have fellowship with you, O God, and might ever enjoy you even as we live before your face and for your goodwill. We're thankful for the providence of this week and thankful for how you have helped and supported your people in many trials and challenges. We continue to pray for those who are ill, that you would bless them and restore them to full health and strength once again. For those who are sorely tempted by the flesh, God, that you would strengthen them to do battle against the flesh and against the devil of hell. We pray, O Father, that you would bless us as we face anxieties about our own lives, about our loved ones, and about the future. We pray that we would never be afraid to trust you, who has ordained all things whatsoever shall come to pass, that we would trust you for that which is unknown to us, but perfectly known and purposefully ordered by you. We pray, O God, that you would bless our nation, that you would grant us repentance and revival, that you would raise up God-fearing men to lead us, and that you would defeat and discourage the folly and wickedness that we see in high places. We pray that your blessing would rest upon your church, not only this congregation, but certainly us as well. We pray, Father, that you would bless your people in all lands and in all places, that you would cause your word to run swiftly and be glorified, your people to be built up in faith and hope and holiness, and that you would use us, O God, as instruments of truth and goodness, that others might see the beauty of Christ and believe the gospel and be saved. And bless us now as we open your word. Uh, We pray that your spirit would guide our understanding, that we would rightly divide and rightly apply the holy scriptures, and that we would be encouraged in our faith and more useful to you, even as we seek to believe uh, more strongly those things that you have promised to us as your people. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. You may be seated. All right, so the plan is for this lesson to be the last one of the positive case for an optimistic eschatology. And I say that recognizing that you've got four pages of notes, and so I make no promises about whether we actually finish this lesson tonight. But this lesson, at least as you have it in front of you, is the last positive argument for this. But you are going to have homework after tonight's session. Uh, I have a number of passages that I want to go through over the next two or three weeks uh, that would seem to be defeaters to the case for an optimistic eschatology. And I want to explain to you why those passages I don't take as defeaters. Some of them we've mentioned before. Some of them we've dealt with briefly. Even some of the things you you may have noticed that came up in the question and answer portion in earlier weeks of the study come up later in the uh, the body of the lesson material itself. And it'll be kind of the same way. Some of the things we've talked about in the Q&As we'll circle back to in uh, in these next few weeks. But your homework is, if you have passages that you have been wondering, how does this idea of an optimistic eschatology, this post-millennial hope, this idea that the nations will be converted and in some way will acknowledge Jesus Christ as Lord, how does that square with these particular verses of Scripture or these particular themes that we think are ubiquitous in Scripture, even if we can't put our fingers on a particular proof text? I want you to send those to me. 
Chances are many of the passages that you're going to think of and share with me are actually already in the pipeline to be dealt with, but I, want to, I don't want to take that for granted. I want to make sure that we are meeting you where you are, and if there are particular passages, if there are particular questions that you have that would seem to overturn this case for an optimistic eschatology, I want you to send them to me. Uh, it would be better to email them to me because if you just simply tell me, I'm going to forget them. And if you text me, I might miss that. But if you email it to me, I will, I will find it and incorporate it. And that will be our plan then for the last uh, two or three weeks of this study. And then we'll move on to other material, Lord willing, beyond that. What I want to do tonight is talk to you about the idea that God's promises in the Abrahamic covenant, and we're going to emphasize why that's important in just a minute, God's promises in the Abrahamic covenant are to his people for a thousand generations. This is something that we've preached on even earlier this year, and I'm not going to repeat all of that material, although obviously there will be some overlap. You can go back and listen to that sermon, perhaps as a complement to tonight's study. But I do want to remind you of things that we have seen and said before, that God's program of grace is multi-generational by design. And that the modern expectation of many evangelical Christians that Jesus could return at any moment, that we're, we're going to bed at night expecting that we might not see another morning. And it's just, we are always on the precipice of eternity that might not be a, a biblically informed expectation. Now, in one sense, we always are on the precipice of eternity. We could, we could leave here tonight and any one of us could be killed in a car accident. Or we could keel over with a heart attack. I mean, every one of us is to live in a state of readiness, preparedness, watchfulness. Be sober-minded is a frequent refrain in the New Testament. But that does not necessarily mean be watchful and ready because Jesus could suddenly appear at any moment. And, and we're not interested tonight or ever in trying to set dates or make predictions or offer signs that are going to precede the coming of the Lord. Perhaps we are wrong in what we have drawn, the conclusions we've drawn from the promises and prophecies we've looked at over the course of this series. Maybe the conversion of the world is not going to look exactly like what many Christians have expected or believed. And so we do want to always be in a state of readiness, including ready to realize that we are wrong. But that being said, I think the Bible says very clearly that there is an expectation that this Abrahamic covenant of grace is going to work itself out, not over the lifetime of many people, but over thousands of generations. Notice, for example, on your study guide, Psalm 105, verses 7 to 12, He is Yahweh our God. His judgments are in all the earth. He remembers His covenant forever. Which covenant? The word which he commanded for a thousand generations, the covenant which he made with Abraham. And his oath to Isaac, and confirmed it to Jacob for a statute, to Israel as an everlasting covenant, saying to you I will give the land of Canaan as the allotment of your inheritance, when they were few in number, indeed very few, and strangers in it. That passage, that promise, appears three times in the Old Testament. It's in Deuteronomy chapter 7, which is the text from which we preached about this uh, several months ago. And this psalm is found in a, a certain form of it, at least, is found in 1 Chronicles chapter 16. And so really, you find it twice in, in the Bible and in three places in the Bible. A thousand generations, that is the duration, so to speak, of the Abrahamic covenant. Now, if we were doing a series on covenant theology instead of eschatology, I would spend some time with you tonight pointing out 
that the psalmist, David, traces a line through Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Israel, and he connects it all together as one covenant. There have been debates in the Reformed world, and there have been debates within our own denomination about how the Mosaic covenant is to be understood in relation to the Abrahamic covenant. This is one passage out of many that I would point to suggest suggest that these are not different covenants, but simply different administrations of the same covenant. The Mosaic covenant is an administration. It has certain unique features, obviously, when Moses becomes the leader and the law is given at Mount Sinai and Israel is organized as a theocratic nation. It has unique features, but it's still an administration of the same covenant covenant. It's not a republication of the covenant of works, for example. And you might say, but, but pastor, doesn't this talk about the promise of the land to ethnic Israel? And that, that's not the covenant of grace that we're living under. But of course, if you've been paying attention to the things that we preach about a lot here, you'll notice that the land promise given to Israel was typological, In other words, it was pointing ahead to a greater promise. It was a sign. It was a down payment, an earnest upon that which would eventually be fulfilled so that that the meek in the new covenant don't merely inhabit the land of Canaan, but they inherit the earth. And that there is a more global, there is a more cosmological expectation associated with the Messiah in his kingdom. And so David says the promises that God gave to Abraham, he further confirmed to Isaac, to Jacob, to Israel, and those promises extend for a thousand generations. Well, what are those promises? Well, in Genesis chapter 12, we could identify eight, but we normally summarize them as three. That I will multiply your descendants so that they become a great nation. I will give them the land of Canaan in which to dwell, and through your seed, all nations of the earth will be blessed. That's, those are the promises of the Abrahamic covenant, at least a summary of them. Those are the promises that David is saying extend for a thousand generations. Now, when you come to the New Testament, what do you notice? In Romans chapters 9 and 10 and 11, in Galatians chapters 3 and 4, we find that those who are of faith in Christ Jesus are the sons of Abraham through whom that promise is fulfilled. If you you are Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. That's what Paul says at the end of Galatians chapter 3. So you might be thinking, well, the Abrahamic promises, they were fulfilled when the children of Jacob, the family of Israel, were multiplied in Egypt, and then they come out in the Exodus and they inhabit the the promised land in the conquest of of Canaan. And and then Jesus is born and he dies and he rises and now we're, we're all done. The promises of the Abrahamic covenant have been fulfilled. But that's not the way the New Testament looks at those promises. The New Testament sees you as a Gentile believer in Jesus as a fulfillment of that promise. In other words, the people of Abraham, the family of Abraham, is still multiplying. And yes, Israel received the land as a down payment, as a type, as a foreshadowing, as a sign of the greater blessing that was coming to all the world. But what is the greater blessing coming to all the world? We looked several weeks ago at Romans chapter 8 where Paul says that creation itself groans and labors with birth pangs together until now, anticipating what? Anticipating the day when the Lord of creation descends and, and redeems the whole earth, removes the curse, and releases creation from the bondage to corruption that she lies under right now. 
And associated with all of that is that third promise. Through your seed, all families of the earth, all nations of the world will be blessed. That doesn't mean every single person on earth, but it does mean that the messianic blessing of salvation will extend to all people groups throughout all human families. And that promise is associated with a thousand generations. Now, generations is a very common measurement in the Bible. You know this, right? The children of Israel are sentenced to wander in the wilderness 40 years until the generation of the Exodus, all of the adults who had left the land of Egypt, save three, had died because of the sin of unbelief and refusing to take the promised land. And so 40 years was one generation. Similarly, Jesus uses generation, 40 years for that generation, when he predicts the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70 by the Romans. In the Olivet Discourse, he says, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. It's going to happen in this generation. 40 years later, it happened. We can see similar places where this pattern of 40 years reappears in the Bible. Now, I'm not suggesting that that's a strict measurement. I understand that biblical numbers and things of that nature are sometimes rounded off, and maybe it's a generalization. But do you understand how long a thousand generations would be if we're using 40 years as kind of a general biblical number for a generation? 40,000 years. Do you understand that Abraham lived 3,800 years ago from where we're sitting right now? 3,800. And if my, I mean, like, I'm not really good at math. But I think that that means that a thousand generations would carry us another 36,000 years into the future. That's a long time. Now, if you're thinking, but pastor, it's not a mathematical formula. We, you know, a thousand years to the Lord is as a day and a day is a thousand years. Right? Right? In fact, the Bible uses the number 1,000 frequently to signify something that is full and abundant and complete. Right? Many times. Many times. Uh, The number a thousand, especially when you look at the apocalyptic literature, when you look at the book of Revelation, for example, you see a thousand being used in that way. Jesus' reign is said to be for a thousand years in Revelation chapter 20. But but most of us, not, not all Christians, but most of us are going to recognize that that reign that's being referred to is the period between Christ's first and second advent. When he comes the first time, born of a virgin Mary, to suffer and die and rise again, and when he comes back at the end of all days. Well, that's already been 2,000 years. So you realize that 1,000 can be a symbolic number. In fact, it is a symbolic number, right? But if you're thinking that that negates the point that this is a long, drawn-out, multi-generational project, realize that we're saying the 1,000-year reign of Christ has already been 2,000 years. In other words, when, when the Bible uses a thousand, it doesn't, it doesn't use a thousand in order to indicate something that is smaller or less. It, it wants to convey the sense of something that's big, something that's many, something that's long, something that's full, something that's complete. And so I don't know exactly how many generations there are going to be from the time of Abraham until the time when Jesus comes again. I, I, I don't know if it's going to be exactly a thousand or hundreds short of that or hundreds beyond that. But I know the use of a thousand in the Bible generally suggests that something is going to continue for a very long time. And God knows how to communicate time. 
You could see this throughout the prophets. When the Lord gave Daniel a prophecy about Alexander the Great and the Greek Empire that would be fulfilled 200 years. This one's easy to date. This one is not obscure at all. 200 years after the life of Daniel, Alexander is going to come on the scene. And what does the Lord say? He gives this prophecy to Daniel and then he says, Daniel chapter 8 verse 26, Seal up the vision for it refers to many days in the future. Many days in the future. And when he gives a prophecy of judgment to the Apostle John in the Revelation, he says in what is no doubt an echo of Daniel chapter 8, Revelation 22 verse 10, Do not seal the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is at hand. Now the way that most people interpret Revelation, the prophecy that John has received was not going to take place for at least 2,000 years. And we're still waiting for it to be fulfilled. But the Bible says, don't seal it up, because it is coming soon. Whereas when the Lord tells Daniel something that's going to happen 200 years later, he says, seal it up. It's it's a long way off. We need to write this down, seal it up, publish it, distribute it. We've got a lot of years to go before we see the fulfillment of those events. God is eternal, but that does not mean God does not know how to tell time. And so when we say, with the, with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is a day, he's not giving us a mathematical formula by which we can do Bible math, right, and figure things like that out. But he's also not saying that time is immaterial to the Lord. God is outside of space and time, but God has created the temporal space in which creation exists. And he relates to temporal and historical creatures, i.e. us. And so he knows how to communicate time, and we see him doing so in the prophets. The Abrahamic promises are the focus of this thousand-generation timeline. And and I want to emphasize that because I don't want you to imagine that there's some other covenantal administration that we're thinking about. It's the promises to Abraham. Now, we realize, in one sense, the Abrahamic promise doesn't begin with Abraham. The promises that God gave to Abraham 3,800 years ago are really just a further revelation of the promises that God made in the garden when Adam and Eve fell. And the Lord promised in the Proto-Evangelium, Genesis 3.15, through the woman's seed, one would come who would crush the head of the serpent. So we realize that that is an anticipation. That's a promise of what we think of as this Abrahamic covenant, this covenant of grace but it receives particular focus in the promises given to Abraham. Abraham's promises organize the rest of the Bible's story. Israel's story, the conquest of the land, the coming of the Messiah, the salvation that spreads to all people groups. Abrahamic promises outline the rest of the story. And God's faithfulness in multiplying the children of Israel, in giving them the land of Canaan, and in sending the Redeemer, all demonstrate that God is faithful to this covenant and to these promises. But are we to say those promises have been fulfilled and there is nothing more that is to be expected? Well, that is not the way. Again, I want to emphasize this. That's not the way that Paul preaches these promises. Go home and read the book of Galatians. It doesn't take long. Go home and read Romans 9, 10, and 11. See the way that he connects you as a Gentile believer in Jesus with Abraham and these promises. 
in Paul's preaching, the Abraham, Abrahamic promises were still being fulfilled. They were still unfolding. Now, I realize that many of us have been taught to expect that Jesus is coming back at any moment. Whether you're a dispensationalist and you're looking for the rapture, or you're an amillennialist and you're just expecting, you know, things are getting worse and worse and, and probably all of the elect have been gathered because after all, we're not expecting more than seven or eight people to make it on the, the ark. And, and so, you know, it could happen at any time. But this puts that expectation in a little bit different perspective. I'm not trying to suggest that you can simply put a mark on your calendar 36,000 years from now and say, we know the Lord won't come back until then. And obviously, whenever he comes back, if it's very far in the future, none of us are going to be alive to see it. But we can expect that as these promises are being worked out, God's mercy and grace are going to continue to work for many generations. It was not a promise to a thousand individuals. It was a promise to generations. And this is the way that God typically works. This was kind of the focus of the sermon a few months ago. The, the way God typically works is through families. And I realize some of you are from unbelieving families. And you say, well, it didn't work that way in my family. Right? Sometimes the Lord plucks a brand from the fire. And he says, nope, I'm not going to let you be lost with the rest of your kinfolk. I'm going to save you. I'm going to draw you to myself. And that's a beautiful thing. But the ordinary way that this works is the way it worked in Abraham's family. What does the Lord say about Abraham? Genesis chapter 18, verse 15. I have known him that he will command his children to keep the way of righteousness. Ordinarily, the kingdom of God is going to grow through families, through generations, through catechism, in other words, through teaching the next generation. When you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise up, it's a long-term project. God is growing a tree, and that takes years. In fact, it takes centuries. And this is to orient our, our gospel ministry. We're supposed to realize that we are not laboring at, uh, on a project that's just right in front of us right at this moment. You know, I mean, it's, it could be depressing, right? I mean, out here you don't have to cut grass. That was the analogy back east. I don't know what you do out here. Maybe clean up the kitchen. You know, it's like, why do I clean up the kitchen, right? I'm just going to get the plates out and put food on them again and make, get them all dirty again. Like, I mean, what is, the, what is the point? That's the way it sometimes feels like preaching, by the way. Like, you just, like, pour yourself into a sermon, and you spend hours and hours every week to preach something in 40 minutes that nobody is going to remember after lunch, right? And, and you think, well, what was the point of all of that? Well, that's how we tend to live our lives, is we're looking at what's right in front of us right now. But Scripture would orient us to think, a hundred years from now. A hundred generations from now. That I'm not just thinking about what's happening in my children's lives. I'm thinking about what is going to happen in my children's 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 lives as a result of the way that we structure our family today. So that we're praying about our grandkids and our great-grandkids and our great-great-grandkids that many of us will never see. Many Christians believe that the return of Christ has to be imminent, has to be cataclysmic, because they say there's language like that in the New Testament. Some of this language we're going to deal with next week or the week after as we begin to look at some of the defeaters. But I want to just point out to you tonight, and you can go home and begin thinking about this, all of those passages that you think say Jesus is coming is right around the corner. Any moment, just hang on, right? Keep your sandals on your feet. Be ready. 
It's any time. I, I remember there's a family that was precious to our, to our family when I was growing up, when I was a teenager. And uh, they had a bunch of kids, and we went to church together, and we were all friends. And, and I remember one night, the wife relating to the rest of us that she had been startled in the middle of the night. She'd woken up. She'd seen a red light shining through their bedroom window, and she woke up her husband because she thought, Jesus is coming back, and I don't want him to miss it. I mean, you'd hate to sleep through the second coming, right? So that's kind of how we're conditioned, right? It could be any moment. But those passages that you think teach that, how many of them, in fact, are pointing to a historical judgment? How many of them are pointing to the fact that the Lord was going to come again in that same generation? And every eye would see him, even they who pierced him. And all the tribes of the land will mourn because of him, because judgment was going to be poured out upon the land of Israel. Because in that generation, judgment was going to come upon the old world of that Mosaic economy, that former covenant, and the people of God who had broken that covenant. What I'm trying to suggest to you is that all of these statements about the imminent return of Christ are are talking about the judgment of Jerusalem in AD 70. And yes, there are statements and commands about watchfulness that are more general, that extend beyond just that historical judgment, but that, that's not a defeater at all to what we're saying. Again, I'm not expecting to survive for a thousand generations. I don't expect to still be around 36,000 years from now. I hope I'm not. <laughs> None of us want to live that long, right? Not here, not right now, not this way. And so I need to be watchful because I don't, I don't know how many books I have left to read. I don't know how many Bible classes on Wednesday night I have left to teach. This could be the last one. I think about that every week when I write a sermon. I think maybe that was the last one. I hope it's a good one. I hope it's faithful. Right? I hope it blesses the people. Maybe the last time I say I love you to my wife is tonight before we go to bed. And, and I love you and that's the last time. So, yes, I need a state of watchfulness. But, but that does not necessarily mean that Jesus is coming back is at any moment. And so we need to live in a state of readiness. We need to live with a state of expectation. But we also don't need to buy into this mentality that says, why would you polish the brass on the Titanic? The ship is going down. And that is an actual analogy that has been used. That's, that's the reason that it gets brought up sometimes by preachers, is to say that's not the way that we ought to think Christianly about our world and about the work of the church right now. The ship is not sinking. Jesus is not about to come and burn it all to the ground. The promise is for a thousand generations, and however long or short that may be, it means that it's multi-generational. It's going to be full, it's going to be lengthy, it's going to be extensive. And maybe it will be much sooner than we expect. There's all kinds of different arguments that you could make for how these promises might work out. But I think the expectation that the Bible says Jesus is coming back at any moment in a cataclysmic event is simply not a correct reading of the data. Now, secondly, the kingdoms of this world are becoming the kingdom of our Lord and Savior. We've said this multiple times in this study, and we mentioned, I think, two weeks ago that there is a method to this madness where we'll repeat things and circle back to points because the more you see in the text and the more of the argument you see, the better able you're you are to see, hopefully, some of the other things. But let me remind you of the fuller context of Revelation chapter 11. The seventh trumpet sounding 
In verse 15, Then the seventh angel sounded, and there were loud voices in heaven, saying, The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of His Christ, and He shall reign forever and ever. Notice, the kingdoms have become the kingdoms of Jesus. They're not ceasing to be kingdoms. They're not disappearing. They're not being destroyed. They are changing hands. There is a change in leadership. There is a change in allegiance. Do you see that? The kingdoms have become the kingdoms of Christ. And he shall reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sat before God on their thrones fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give you thanks, O Lord God Almighty, the one who is and who, uh, the one who is and who was and who is to come, because you have taken your great power and reigned. The nations were angry, and your wrath has come in the time of the dead that they should be judged, and that you should reward your servants, the prophets and the saints, and those who fear your name, small and great, and should destroy those who destroy the earth. Who is Jesus going to destroy? Who is he going to subjugate? Who is he going to condemn? Those who are destroying the earth. But I think many people are expecting what Jesus is going to do through his sovereign rule is destroy the earth. That's not what the Bible says. It says that he's going to destroy those who are destroying the earth. Jesus is not on their side. He's against them. And we should be against them too. Now what I want to point out to you about this statement that we have not looked at so far is that This is an affirmation that the kingdoms of this world belong right now to Jesus. You say, well, of course they do because he's the creator of all things. But that's not the point. The New Testament has prepared you to see this point, but you have to be able to follow a line of argument. Notice what the devil offers to Jesus in Matthew chapter 4 in his wilderness temptation. In Matthew chapter 4, verses 8 and 9, the devil took Jesus up on an exceedingly high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory, and he said to him, all these things I will give you if you fall down and worship me. Who is the ruler of this world? It's the devil. Is he going to remain the ruler of this world? Well, it depends on your eschatological position. But the Bible indicates the answer to that question is no. The kingdoms of this world that were under the sway of the wicked one, have become the kingdoms of the Lord Jesus. Do all of them know that? Not yet. They will. There is a point in time where the devil has power over the nations. We call that time the period prior to the resurrection. What changed at the resurrection? In Psalm 2, verse 5, Then he shall speak to them in his wrath. This is Yahweh to the nations who are in rebellion. He shall speak to them in his wrath and distress them in his deep displeasure. Yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. Despite your opposition, despite your persecution, despite your efforts to put him to death, I will declare the decree. Yahweh has said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Remember that Paul interprets that for us in Acts chapter 13 in the sermon in Antioch of Pisidia when he says that is a reference to the resurrection. So Jesus is resurrected and enthroned on the holy hill of Zion enthroned over who? All of the kings and kingdoms that were in rebellion against God. Ask of me, and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. Who? Revelation 11. I told you you have to follow a line of argument. Who is he going to break with a rod of iron? Those who destroy the earth. He's not destroying the kingdoms. He's destroying the rebels. He's destroying the disobedient magistrates. He's destroying the kingdoms that stand against him and bringing forth kingdoms that are obedient to him. What does the father offer to the son after the resurrection? 
He offers him what, the, what Satan offered to him without the cross. Jesus' reward for his obedience in death and resurrection is what Satan offered him without the cross. Do you see that? The language is exactly the same. All these kingdoms I'll give you, all these nations, if you'll bow down and worship me. The son says no. He goes to the cross. He dies. He rises. What does the father say? I'll give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. He gets what the devil was offering because it doesn't belong to the devil anymore. Daniel chapter 7. We see this. I was watching in the night visions, verse 13, and behold, one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. Why do we call Jesus the Son of Man in the Gospels? Why is that the most common name that Jesus uses for himself? People, commentators will say, well, it's because he's truly human. That's true, but that's not the reason that he uses that name, not primarily. It makes that point, but it's a reference to Daniel chapter 7. He came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. Then to him was given what? Dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. All nations should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom the one which shall not be destroyed. Will all nations serve the Son or not? You see, if you believe that the future of this world is for Jesus to come back in cataclysmic judgment and destroy the nations and thereby subjugate them, then that statement doesn't actually mean what it seems to say. Because it says that all nations will serve him. Not that they'll be destroyed by him. Not that they will simply be subdued by him. But that they will serve him. That's what the promise is. When does it happen? In his ascension. In his resurrection and ascension. So Psalm 2, despite the nation's opposition and rebellion, remember, they are under the sway of the wicked one. Satan is the god of this world. And despite their fury and despite their impenitence, Yahweh says, I've set my king on my holy hill. He raises him up. Today I have begotten you. He enthrones him on Mount Zion in the ascension. The Son of Man comes to the Ancient of Days and is given dominion over all of the nations. To what end? That they might serve him. And then Matthew 28, the Great Commission. Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. The Great Commission is understood as the outworking of the promises in Psalm 2 and Daniel 7. That's how this gets fulfilled. So Satan, who is the God of this world, offers it to Jesus without a cross. Jesus refuses the temptation, obeys the Father in death, is raised to life, exalted to glory, given dominion over all nations so that all nations will serve him. Why don't all nations serve him yet? Because the Great Commission has not been fulfilled. I mean, it's being fulfilled. It's being carried on, but it hasn't been fulfilled yet. Have we baptized all the nations? Have we discipled all the nations? Have all the nations been taught to obey Jesus as Lord? No. You say, well, is that really what's going to happen? According to Psalm 2, it's going to happen. According to Daniel 7, it's going to happen. According to all of the promises and prophecies that we saw in previous weeks, it's going to happen. How is it going to happen? It's not going to happen by getting your guy elected next year. It's not going to happen by getting conservative majorities in the legislature or on the Supreme Court. I want all of those things. I pray for all of those things. I vote for all of those things. 
Those are not the things that are going to fulfill this promise. Jesus told us how it's going to be fulfilled. As his people go forth and command the nations to bow the knee to Christ. The gospel is a message about lordship. That's why you don't see the apostles preaching the gospel the way that modern Christians, modern Western evangelical Christians do. Modern Western evangelical Christians say, you're a sinner, but God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. And you never see the apostles sharing the gospel in that way. I'm not saying it's wrong. I'm not saying it's untrue. And I'm not saying people can't get saved that way. Like, lots of people have been saved that way. Most of us probably got saved that way. It's just not the way that the apostles preached the gospel. What did they do? They would go and they would say, Jesus Christ, whom you crucified, God has raised, and he is Lord and Christ. That's what they would say. Every single sermon in Acts. You can check me. It commands creation to acknowledge that Jesus is king, to become his servant in baptism, and to obey everything that he has taught. That's why the Great Commission in Mark 16 puts it this way. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. Because baptism is the mark of those who have bowed the knee. This, this is a follower of Jesus. Christ rules the nations, and one day all of the nations will confess that that is true. He does. He has authority over them. Now, what does that look like? I don't want to be dogmatic in trying to describe exactly what that will look like at some point in the future, or when it's going to happen, or how exactly it's going to come about. You know, I I actually kind of tongue-in-cheek made the argument to a couple of the officers uh, a few months ago that you could actually argue that post-millennialism is true and we're already on the other side of the golden age and that Christ's return is imminent. Because after all, what happens? I mean, the Roman Empire is Christianized. The emperor gets baptized. Eventually, Rome, as a persecuting power, falls. And you have the Holy Roman Empire. I mean, all of Western Europe is Christianized. Considerable swaths of Asia, Africa, and South America are as well. What we're seeing is a post-Christian world right now. And so maybe, maybe you could argue there was the golden age, and now we're on the other side of it. Now, I was being tongue-in-cheek, and I think one of them might have taken me a little more seriously than I meant for him to. That's not actually what I believe. But I'm saying that to make the point that this could be fulfilled in ways that you or I might not immediately recognize because we have, we have tunnel vision in terms of our expectations. And we have to remember that the Lord's thoughts are not our thoughts, His ways are not our ways. Indeed, His ways and thoughts are so much higher than ours as the heavens are higher than the earth. And so we, can, we, we should not expect that as finite, fallible creatures, we can anticipate the Lord very well. The truth is, there are a lot of promises, there are a lot of prophecies associated with Jesus' reign in glory in this present world prior to His second coming, that are expressed in figurative language. And trying to sort out what is literal and what is figurative is admittedly very hard. One of the ones that we have mentioned before, Isaiah 65, says, No more shall an infant from there live but a few days, nor an old man who has not fulfilled his days. For the child shall die 100 years old, but the sinner being 100 years old shall be accursed. That's not the eternal state. Nobody's dying in the eternal state. No wicked men are walking around in the eternal state. But, but what exactly does that mean? That's a hard passage. I can tell you, I, I think I know what that means, right? You might think you know what that means. And we could all be wrong. 
There's admittedly some figurative language here, right? The wolf and the lamb shall feed together, the lion shall eat straw like the ox, and dust shall be the serpent's food. You say, well, dust being the serpent's food, obviously the, the serpent has been put into the ground and he's rubbing his face in the... I got it, right? Yep. There's, there's figurative language there. So how exactly do we sort out what's literal, what's figurative? That's, that's admittedly difficult. That's why we need to have a great deal of humility in this conversation. Because Christ is able to do exceedingly, abundantly, above all that we ask or think. That the, the resurrection power of Jesus that the Father has worked by His Spirit in His Son is able to do exceedingly, abundantly, beyond anything that we could imagine. And so we need to have humility, while at the same time being optimistic and confident. Because here's the, here's the thing. Appealing to figurative language that may be obscure only gets you so far. So, so you say, well, pastor, what you're admitting is that these promises, these prophecies, maybe they don't mean what you have taken them to mean. I say, well, and, and in any given place, to some extent, that could absolutely be true. But it only gets you so far. How many times does the Lord have to say, all the ends of the earth shall hear and fear and turn to Yahweh and worship Him. How many times do I have to say it? Before we begin to say, maybe there's figurative language involved in some of these promises, but, but it's telling us something that's going to happen. Some way, somehow, at some point, we're going to see the nations acknowledge that Jesus is King. We need to be confident that the blessings of the gospel will result not only in the rescue of a few, but in the salvation of the world. That is the point of this series. It's not to convince you to be a hardline, dogmatic post-millennialist. I honestly don't care. Like, you could continue to call yourself an amillennialist or say, I have no idea what any of those terms mean. Or, I, I don't know how it's going to work. But I'm expecting not that Jesus is going to pluck out a handful of people and condemn the mass of humanity to hell. I am sufficiently convinced by the overwhelming testimony of Scripture that Jesus is going to save the world. That the nations are going to come to him. That the nations that refuse to obey him are going to be judged and that ultimately every knee will bow and confess that he is Lord. Not just at the second coming, not just on the last day, but through the progress of gospel ministry over a thousand generations. We need a long-term perspective. We talked about this before. I'm only going to mention this just very briefly. And I think it was in the Q&A that this came up uh, uh, earlier. Postmillennialism declined in the 20th century after the Great Depression and two world wars, and the social gospel. The rise of liberal theology, liberal theology invaded mainline denominations that were dominated by postmillennial thought. And so they're expecting social change. They're expecting world transformation. And you introduce liberal theology in that kind of eschatological orientation, and what you get is the social gospel, which is no gospel where you just reduce Christianity to doing good. And, it, and, it, and postmillennialism fell on hard times. People are looking around in the first half of the 20th century and saying things are not getting better, they're getting worse. And the guys that are expecting the world to change are all unbelievers who don't actually think Jesus rose from the dead. If that's what postmillennialism is, I'm not going to be a postmillennialist. I don't blame them. 
During that time, in the latter part of the 19th century, the early part of the 20th century, when the mainline churches are embracing liberal theology, abandoning any belief in the authority of Scripture, the infallibility of Scripture, the reality of biblical miracles, the virgin birth, the resurrection of Christ, you know who is standing against them? Dispensationalists. It's fundamentalists who were originally, many of them Presbyterian. Dispensationalism was introduced as a revision of covenant theology. And they've embraced dispensational thought, and they're holding the line. And, and, and God's using them to preserve orthodoxy. Praise God for that. Here's the problem. Give that two or three generations, and now all of the conservative Christians have a dispensational mindset, which is where we are. But if we step back just a little bit, I think we can see that the gospel has brought incredible blessings to the world. You know, I read a lot of ancient history and a lot of uh, philosophy, and it is astonishing how degraded the ancient world truly was. I I think a lot of us have had this kind of very rosy, picture in our minds about the ancient world and how civilized it was, moral, none of it's remotely true. Not remotely. America's going through a bad time. Like the last 50 years have really been unfortunate, (laughs) really difficult, not something that the church wants to cheer about. I get it. Do you know where Western civilization was 500 years ago? Do you have any historical context at all? Morality in the ancient world was brutal. It was brutal. Sexual immorality was rampant. Perversion was at a level that is not even yet public. Now, we're giving them a run for their money. Like these pride parades and drag queen story hour, like we're going to get there, right? But we're not there yet. Slavery was ubiquitous. It was practiced in every nation, every human society, 1,800 years after the gospel begins to be preached in all the world, suddenly the Western world wakes up and realizes maybe slavery is immoral. Where did you get that idea? You didn't get it from any of the Greek philosophers. You didn't get it from any of the Greek poets. You didn't get it from the Romans. You didn't get it. You got it from Christianity. That's, That's where that idea came from. It transformed the world. Class systems for the oppression of the poor were inevitable and universal. There was never any thought about doing it otherwise. I mean, like, you wouldn't even imagine changing that system until you preach the gospel for 1,500 years. And then people begin to behave in more moral ways. Not perfectly, by any means. We've got a long way to go. The discipline of modern science is the fruit of the Christian worldview, period, full stop. Like, science in the ancient world, it's a different thing. The modern discipline of science is the result of a biblical worldview. The creation of hospitals, that's the church. Universities, that's the church. Systems of public justice, a belief in human rights, a concern for just economic systems, Social welfare programs, care for the poor and infirm, exploration of the world and beyond this planet are all the result 
of an explicitly Christian and dominion-oriented worldview. None of those blessings exist in the modern world without the church and gospel ministry. None of them. And, and you're telling me that things are getting worse. And I realize, depending on where you're looking at any given moment, it seems that way. I get it. But step back and look at a larger perspective. Scripture not only promises that the nations will be converted, it predicts that the nations will be judged by Jesus. And not just on the last day, but throughout the present age. And so I think in many ways, what you're seeing in America, for example, in many Western countries that are post-Christian, they have abandoned the faith of their fathers. They have broken covenants that some of them explicitly entered into. What you're seeing is exactly what you should expect to see. You should not be shocked that a nation begins to struggle in the ways that we do when we give ourselves to immorality, to irreverence, to injustice. You've read the second half of Romans chapter 1. What happens when people become ungrateful to God? God hands them over and they become immoral. What happens if they don't repent? God hands them over and they become more immoral. What happens if they don't repent? He hands them over a third time and they destroy themselves. Here we are. Psalm 2, verse 9, You shall break them with a rod of iron, you shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. That's, what you're seeing on the news is not a defeater to a post-millennial perspective. I would argue it's confirmation that Jesus is the Lord of the nations. Like, the devil's not doing this to us. The king of heaven and earth is doing this to us. And he's done it over and over and over again. I mean, you see this in Egypt and Assyria and Babylon and Persia and Greece and Rome. Like, I mean, like, it's not like this is the first time. Hebrews chapter 12 talks about the Lord shaking all of the kingdoms until only the unshakable kingdom remains. Well, let me give you two last points, and, and we are going to be able to finish, Lord willing, here in just the last few minutes. The last two things that I want to say in this kind of positive argument of, of, our, of our study is something that I said in the very first lesson, and that is that all amillennialists are postmillennial. Now, I can't say this about premillennialists, obviously, but all amillennialists, which many Reformed Christians identify as amillennial, or at least they would if they, if they were familiar with that term, all amillennialists are postmillennial. Both amillennialists and postmillennialists believe that Jesus comes back after the millennial reign. That's, that's all that those terms mean. And really, at this point, most postmillennialists and most amillennialists agree that the millennial reign simply describes that period between the two advents of Christ. So there were, in, in earlier periods of the church's history, in the Puritan period, for example, there were some postmillennialists, not all, who believed that the gospel was going to succeed, the nations were going to be converted and transformed, and eventually we would enter into the millennial reign. And there would be kind of this glorious period. That's kind of an earlier version. It was never the only version, but an earlier version of postmillennialism. Most postmillennialists today don't believe that. They realize, no, that the millennial reign is this figurative period, so to speak, between the first coming of Christ and the last coming of Christ, during which his rule is exercised over the nations and the world is gradually transformed by the gospel. So, Postmillennialists and amillennialists are in agreement on those things. Where they disagree is in their expectation and optimism with regard to the progress of transformation in the present world. We agree about generally when Jesus comes back. We agree generally about where we are right now prior to his return. The difference is in the level of expectation and optimism with regard to what 
is going to happen before he returns. And you see a spectrum of thought here. You see some pessimistic amillennialists. And you see some optimistic amillennialists who, quite honestly, I mean, that's where I was for years before I kind of admitted that I was a postmillennialist. Just kind of came to terms. I had in my mind a very definite, this is what a postmillennialist is, and I can't be that dogmatic. I can't, I can't be that assertive, and so I must be an optimistic amillennialist. But, but really, there's, there's not much difference between those two. You have cautious postmillennialists, and you have more dogmatic and confident postmillennialists. R.C. Sproul, in his book, The Last Days According to Jesus, talks about that a little bit in, under a different name. Some people, I think, resist postmillennial optimism for the wrong reasons. And I want to try to prevent that here. If, if at the end of the study you still say, well, Pastor, I, I love you, but, uh, but I think you're, a, you know, I'm still a premillennialist and you're wrong. I'm still an amillennialist, I think you're wrong. That, that's okay. That, that, that doesn't bother me. That doesn't offend me at all. But I don't want you to resist optimism for the wrong reasons. The gospel is powerful. Christ is Lord of all. The original dominion mandate is being fulfilled and will be fulfilled by the last Adam, who is the king of all kings. Don't think that affirming that requires you to be exactly like every postmillennialist you might have known or have a definitive, dogmatic assertion about what that's going to look like or how exactly that's going to play out. Simply embrace that promise and hope that the gospel is going to succeed. The dominion mandate is going to be fulfilled. And it's going to be fulfilled by Jesus because he's king. The glory, the knowledge of the glory of the Lord is going to cover the face of the earth as the water covers the sea. It's going to happen. And it is happening right now. Biblical eschatology, though realistic, is optimistic. And I want to just, I want to read these last couple paragraphs and then the lesson will be yours. The Bible is realistic about man's sinfulness, the persistence of evil, the inevitability and necessity of trials, and the judgment of the last day. None of those are defeaters to a postmillennial view. An optimistic eschatology does not deny or diminish any of those realities. No matter how much progress the gospel makes in this world, it will still not become heaven on earth. We still await the Lord's return, the resurrection of the dead, the judgment of the world, and the eternal state. We still endure trials patiently, resist temptation manfully, and recognize that this world remains fallen and under the curse of sin until the day of redemption. But that is not all that the scriptures say. The Bible tells us that Jesus is Lord of all and that his resurrection is the beginning of the new creation, that his kingdom has been established and he is enthroned, and that his kingdom will grow and subdue every other kingdom of man until finally only the kingdom of God remains. All the ends of the earth of the world shall remember and turn to Yahweh, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you, for the kingdom is Yahweh's, and he rules over the nations. Psalm 22. The number of the saved on the last day will be innumerable, not a small remnant of exiles plucked from the mass of unsaved humanity. Abraham's seed will be like the sand of the seashore and the stars of the heavens. No one will be able to count them, but God knows each of their names. Christians should not be pessimists even if we are realists. We should believe that the power and authority of Christ is greater than the devil and tyrants of this world. We should believe the gospel is more powerful than the lies of the enemy. We should believe God's plan is greater and will succeed beyond the plots and interference of the wicked. We should believe creation's destiny will be fulfilled. 
God did not make the world and call it very good in order to destroy it and condemn the vast majority of people in it to hell. He made the world to fill it with his glory. Jesus came to save the world. He has, he is, and he will. Amen.